So thank you for this opportunity to share with everybody some insights on these amazing verses that uh, Jillian read earlier, and we all uh, read along as well. Um, somewhat long passage, often uh, passages are shorter when we have uh, uh, service together, but uh, totally uh, packed so much here. Uh, honestly, we could uh, use our time very well from now till midnight tonight and uh, still be digging, but we won't do that. We're going to uh, give uh, great focus on basically three points. And again, whoever picked the uh, uh, great hymn, In Christ There Is No East or West, I want to uh, thank those individuals who did that. That is one of my favorite hymns for a variety of reasons. And the church I grew up in was a, a kind of megachurch in its time with 2,000 on Sunday service and 2,000 in Sunday school. Uh, not exactly the same people, like 75% uh, overlap, but uh, the church was committed to foreign missions. And so one half of the budget every year went to foreign missionaries in dozens of countries. So I learned geography first at church when uh, missionaries came back with pictures and curios and great stories. And several of those missionaries were relatives of mine. So I grew up in a family that was a missionary family. Uh, back uh, many years ago in 1986, I spent the summer as a missionary to Romania. Now, you may recall the, the sequence of history. It, it wasn't until Christmas of 89, uh, three and a half years later, that Chutesco, the terrible dictator, one of the worst dictators in, in world history, uh, this terrible dictator was arrested by the people and put on trial and uh, he and his wife executed on uh, Christmas Eve with as, as really a gift from God. Um, if you knew how horrible this person was, and I saw day by day that summer of 1986, just the, the wreckage that he was causing through this evil uh, view called atheistic socialism. Uh, and just total abuse of people, and working closely with uh, Christians that were kind of above ground, uh, public church, and working with uh, Christian activities uh, below the ground, uh, secret meetings. In fact, um, six days a week, I was helping to lead these secret meetings, and I uh, had to go through a complex routine to be able to uh, arrive at the meeting without being detected. So, uh, and what I saw there was this amazing strength and, and courage and clarity among the, the Christians in Romania. I, I do believe that if your life is at risk for believing something, if your ability to hold a job one more day is at risk for having faith in Jesus, you're going to really want to know Jesus and know why this sacrifice is worthwhile. So the motivation to be deep in the word, to motivation to band together very deeply and sincerely among Christians was a profound, absolutely profound. 
And uh, the church that I had uh, this unofficial affiliation with, though I came in as a tourist, uh, but I made contact with the pastor of what was then the most well-attended church in all of Europe, a church that would seat by our fire standards, would seat at the most 700, but every Sunday was packed out with 5,000. People more squeezed together, uh, chest to back, chest to back, uh, standing in all the aisles, squeezed into the chairs, uh, but more packed together than any subway car I've ever been on. And I've been on a lot of packed subway cars. So the, the passion for the, of the people. And by the way, church service was typically three and a half hours long with uh, tons of prayers and singing. And the way they prayed, the prayer time, everyone would be praying at the same time. And of course, our God has uh, far beyond the uh, best supercomputer to be able to listen intently to all of those prayers. And by the way, they were prayed with passion because people understood how much they needed Jesus right then and uh, going forward. So I left uh, Romania on a Saturday night. And as I was uh, uh, finding my hotel in uh, Budapest, uh, Hungary, which was a much more free uh, country in those days, uh, I, I walked past a church that was just a block or so away from the hotel. And, uh, and I was exhausted. I had, I had just so deeply given, at the same time so deeply received with uh, especially Christian young people. I was working almost every day with you know, Christian young people in their 20s that needed Bible training, that needed to go deep and to grow their faith in every dimension of their lives. So I was bringing a kind of, um, well, a Bible teaching, but with an understanding of uh, multiple aspects of their lives. But anyway, so I saw this church. I thought, well, wonderful. I'll go to church uh, tomorrow morning. Well, they didn't have any uh, English hymn books or, or <laughs> Bibles or prayer books when I arrived. And so I couldn't read the, uh, the words on the hymn. But the first hymn was, In Christ There Is No East or West. The very first hymn. And everyone was uh, singing in the Hungarian uh, language. And, of course, in those days, we talked about East and West as East and West part of Europe, the divide between the Eastern Bloc, which was all the satellites of the, of the communist uh, Russia uh, empire. So uh, here I had this feeling of having crossed the line between East and West, having devoted the summer to the East and now uh, stepping uh, into the West with um, being in Hungary. So I'm sure everybody around me thought I was nuts because I started singing maybe a little louder than I should have <laughs> and totally in English as I brought, as I, the Lord helped me bring to mind the words in English and to really celebrate that the Christ that gave this extraordinary courage to the dear brothers and sisters in Romania is the same Christ that, that I was able to bring back to New York 
and and to have that uh, devotion and passion that can be contagious. So again, thanks for our In Christ There Is No Easter West. As a missionary coming out of Romania after a, a summer of mission work, uh, that uh, song was so timely and so appropriate. I mentioned that I come from a missionary family and a lot of the my uh, ancestors, including my uncle Henry, I'll mention here, uh, did pioneer missionary work, went where the gospel had never gone before, knew that they had to uh, start from uh, point zero in terms of explaining the gospel to people. And most importantly, went to very dangerous places. Uh, Henry and Gladys graduated from uh, Moody Bible Institute around 1920. And uh, Henry had already uh, served in the Navy uh, in the Pacific uh, during World War I. And uh, he had a passion to bring the gospel to Mindanao. And the more he prayed about it, the more the Lord made that clear. Mindanao, the big island of the Philippines, where the gospel had only penetrated to the port cities because no Christian missionary, Catholic or Protestant, had ever, ever gone to the interior and come back alive. There were dozens, scores of, uh, of uh, people that were martyrs bringing the gospel to Mindanao. And Henry and Gladys knew that God had called them. The family pled with them not to go. Just, you know, go a safer place. You're a young couple. You're going to have children. You, you deserve to have a, a, a civilized, uh, safe life. But uh, when God planted an idea in Gladys's heart and in Henry's heart and made it clear, they were not compromising. Even non-Christians at the port uh, uh, tried to persuade them not to go to the interior because they, they were so convinced that they would be martyred. But Henry and Gladys went. And God went with them. And they were able over the years, up until they were captured by the Japanese in early 1940s, they, and they were in prison camp for three years, but they were able to bring the gospel to uh, uh, 12 locations where they were able to not only uh, bring people to Jesus, but train leaders, establish a, a location, uh, uh, help uh, develop an accountability system in 12 places. So there were 12 working churches that were growing bef even before um, the, uh, in, you know, 1941 when they were captured. Then they were in prison camp. It took uh, a year and a half after they were released with, with, with what uh, Colin Powell calls the most extraordinary uh, rescue of prisoners of war ever because all 2,000 were rescued without anyone being injured. It was, I, I won't take the time this morning, but uh, there, there was just a, a, a miracle-loaded rescue 20 miles across, uh, into enemy lines where uh, MacArthur even uh, recruited people to, uh, to serve in this uh, rescue uh, force 
uh, saying it could well be a suicide mission. But no American soldiers were killed either. And uh, 2,000 were released, put on pontoon boats, and uh, brought to a safe territory. So the, the miracles surrounded, but Henry and Gladys were threatened by militant Muslims, which controlled, uh, still do control about a third of the island. So recognizing God's presence. So I come to this text as a person who really believes in missionary work, heard a lot of great stories in our contemporary world of people that commit to God and are uh, protected and guided and uh, have fruitful ministry. So I think there are three points, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. In verses 16 through 22, uh, the key element here is connecting, connecting. Paul knew how to connect. He was with uh, people that, that were familiar to him. He uh, grew up in Tarsus, which was um, a few hundred miles east, excuse me, yeah, a few hundred miles east of this Antioch of Pisidia, right in, which is right in the middle of what we now call Turkey. Tarsus was maybe uh, 400 miles east of that. So he grew up in a, in a similar kind of environment in, in far west Asia. And, uh, and of course, he, he grew up as, uh, to become a, uh, like a rabbi, I mean, as, a, as, a, as a biblical scholar, uh, went through all the right schools. And so he knew how to relate to uh, people in the synagogue. And the first place he went when he got to Antioch or Pisidia, not to be confused with the church that sent him out and sent Barnabas out, Antioch of Syria. And think of Antioch of Syria and Antioch of Turkey. Uh, both we kind of identify with Middle, uh, the Middle East, but many hundreds of miles apart. And so he went to the synagogue. The leaders recognized that uh, Paul and Barnabas were not uh, the regulars at the synagogue meeting, people that they had never met before. And so they invited them to say something as a nice uh, gesture of uh, hospitality. And, and perhaps in some way, God was also leading the synagogue leaders to do that. And Paul saw the open door and uh, thought it's uh, good to catch them up on what's happening, including especially uh, most recent events that they may not have heard about, even though Jesus had uh, died and was resurrected probably hmm, 12 uh, no more than that, probably uh, 15 to 18 uh, years before. But the message uh, may not have gotten out or not a positive message. So he relates to them. He refers to them as you know fellow Jews and uh, Gentiles that were convinced of the um, uh, truth and value of the Hebrew scriptures. And he repeated uh, Hebrew history with a theme. Uh, uh, you may have caught it, may have caught the tone of his uh, review of uh, uh, Jewish history. If you look again, maybe make a note to look again at verses uh, 17 through 22. On 12 occasions in those uh, verses, in just um, six verses, on 12 occasions, Paul says, God did this. God did that. God did this. So like twice for every verse on average. It's so God-centered in his 
statement of history. And we've all probably heard the, the play on words, history is his story. And Paul surely tells it that way. God did this. God conquered the promised land. You know, God uh, uh, subdued the the other uh, uh, tribes there, etc. You know, God was the one that made them prosperous in Egypt. God is the one that uh, protected them during their slavery. God did this, God did that. So uh, a, a wonderful way of telling history. And I do think that even in our own time, it's very important to think in terms of God's actions. I, I didn't see the newspaper this morning, but so many times the uh, headlines are disturbing, whichever newspaper is your regular. And um, as a habit, I've gotten into a habit that uh, when a headline can be disturbing to just reaffirm Jesus Christ is Lord. The part of our current history that uh, the newspaper is mostly not reporting is that God knows what he is doing. And even if we're anxious uh, about the election coming up, to recognize that, that God's blessings are, uh, are, are very much dependent on our prayers and our uh, faithfulness to God, uh, you know, regardless of who wins on each level of the election that Jesus is not giving up his position as being the Lord and, and we can trust him. I'm not saying that there can't be hard times coming up, can't be uh, uh, persecution even in our own country. And probably many of you on the job or in school experienced persecution in America anyway. I sure did, in, especially in graduate school, but even in uh, uh, job situations. It's uh, uh, very important to be faithful to God, to do as he directs, and to really trust that he is in charge. And in, even when we mess up, maybe even if we, uh, um, we suffer not from persecution, but from being stupid or, or being uh, insensitive or whatever the right word is, we can still trust Jesus to lead us out of that uh, mess uh, and to help us to uh, learn what we should be learning in, uh, in those painful situations. So Paul then climaxes this uh, uh, wonderful retelling of the story of Israel. Uh, he, cl- he climaxes and summarizes and puts to a, a point here in verse 23, and is one of King David's descendants, Jesus, who is God's promised savior of Israel. So it's the history is a background to sharing with them then who is Jesus. But he connected with them. At this point, I think everyone in the room was inspired, not just because here's a fellow Jew coming from, uh, from in this case from Syria, because he spent some time in Antioch of Syria helping Barnabas teach the people, uh, so he was from Antioch of Syria, and people were interested in the kind of mutual encouragement that they could receive, uh, all of them part of the Jewish diaspora uh, at great distance from Jerusalem and the, and the main uh, sections of uh, Israel. But connecting is so crucial. 
years ago, I uh, uh, read, was rereading Acts as a teenager. I had memorized Acts in the King James Version. Uh, and, uh, but I was rereading it in a modern version, and it just hit me that my namesake, remember my name is also Paul, uh, I was never called Saul, so the the uh, connection isn't uh, complete there. But I, as I was rereading, it just hit me so strongly how many times Paul went to the synagogue. When he went to a town, the first thing he did was connect with the Jewish people there in the town. And there, of course, again, he could connect because he shared this this background and his own passion about the scriptures and about uh, uh, the Jewish teaching that, that had shaped him uh, until his conversion. And by the way, Paul is at this point uh, in the story, he's, it's been probably uh, 12 years uh, since he was saved, so that um, he's had some time to season as a believer in Jesus uh, and go through some persecution as well. But curiously, um, as I'm reading it, it just hits me I, I just feel a conviction from God, right, directly from God, conviction to connect more with the Jewish community. And so I called the head of the uh, New York Board of Rabbis, and I uh, explained to the uh, his handlers that I needed to talk with him, and they want to know who I was, so I explained. And so I got through to him, and I, I said, I, I'd like to meet you. And, you know, I'd been to a lot of synagogues, uh, when Israel had been attacked in the past, I'd go to the local synagogue right here, just a short distance from where we live, and to pray with my neighbors, uh, though, you know, they, uh, not in Jesus' name, but to pray with them, nevertheless, as a kind of solidarity. But um, but here, to, to reach out in the, to the top Jewish leader of uh, New York City, and um, so we talked briefly on the phone, and uh, he says, well, um, I'll call you back in a couple of weeks. Well, I marked it on my calendar and two weeks and a couple more days went by and still no phone call from him. So I called back and I said, uh, um, please, uh, uh, let's go ahead and have that meeting. And, and so uh, when we do have a meeting, I'm sitting down then and, and uh, immediately he says, well, I got some questions. First question is, do Jews need Jesus? And I was not prepared to be interrogated in, at all. And surely I hadn't like practiced that question, but the Lord gave me a good answer, obviously, uh, because I'm not ambiguous. I, I do think that Jesus is for Jews and Gentiles. So I answered him, yes, you know, Jesus is a great gift of God to all Jews and all Gentiles. And the gospel is this tremendous work of God's grace for all Jews and all Gentiles. And so I, and I said it very slowly, so it wouldn't be like I'm just trying to get past this. I, he, he senses that I really believe this. And he had tons of other questions. Literally an hour and a half go by in this interrogation. By the way, he's also a trained lawyer, so uh, that probably added to his interrogating skills. And then he says, I apologize. Looks at his watch. He says, I apologize. I've got another meeting now, and I didn't give you a chance to ask questions. 
But he said, I want you to know I like you. And then he hesitated a minute. So I'm listening. He said, I like you because you say what you believe. You don't try to pretend to be agreeing with me or, 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 or trying to toe down what you believe. I really, he said, I really respect someone who says what they believe and says it nicely because the other thing I want you to know is I feel your compassion for me and my people. So he said, we must get together again. And I want other rabbis to meet you. And so this opened up uh, a whole series of round tables with uh, leading rabbis and leading evangelical leaders in the city. And this continues. So, uh, and by the way, Jesus always comes up. Uh, But it's a tremendous way to connect and we're uh, often invited to speak then at all Jewish meetings in, in one way or another. So it's a, a very healthy relationship. It's not an evangelistic moment, but it is a time of honesty and, and clarity to understand each other's heart. And there's been a growth uh, connecting and growing together in deep appreciation. The, uh, the in, let me just mention too, uh, this idea of connecting is so powerful. One of my uh, former students who graduated from New York Divinity School a few years ago, in part uh, inspired by my stories of doing missionary work in three communist countries, he was uh, driven to go to a uh, hostile uh, Muslim country to bring the gospel, a country where there are no churches, the country of Afghanistan. And uh, this former student, who I won't mention by name, but he is a world-class soccer player and a consummate storyteller. So what he does is when he goes to a new village, he'll start uh, doing some uh, soccer tricks in the, the main park in the center of the village. And immediately he has you know, two dozen or more people just mesmerized by him. Then he tells them, just sit down. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you a story. Then he tells a story. He says, I got another story. So he tells that story. Then he invites someone to volunteer from the the growing group to come up, and he's going to do something together to help teach them some soccer trick. That goes on for a few minutes. Then he says, hey, everyone sit down. I got one more story. So he tells the story, and then he says, now, tomorrow, 1 o'clock, I'll be here again. More soccer, more soccer training, and a few more stories. Now, he didn't tell them at the first that all his stories come from the Bible. And none of them have ever heard stories. And they always say, we've never heard such stories, such amazing stories, such riveting stories, such inspiring stories. And uh, But after the first meeting, even, he just goes across the street where the chief lives, across the street from the main park where the chief lives, uh, knocks on the door, and he says, I'm from New York. By the way, he, he looks like he was born in that part of the world, uh, which he was. But nevertheless, he's from New York. He says, I'm from New York, and I want to teach your people, may I stay in your guest room? And he's always welcomed in, and the chief always has someone show him where the kitchen is and the full refrigerator and make yourself at home. 
I've heard already what you're doing in the park, and we really like it, so stay as long as you want. So he's never embarrassingly pushy or uh, whatever, but the people that start coming and continue to come and the group grows uh, will corner him and ask, tell us, tell me more about this God that you're talking about. And when anyone asks, where did you get all these stories? He's honest. He says, I get them all from the Bible. And then, you know, continues, no high pressure, but the Holy Spirit works within their lives. And thank God every year he has around 70 people that want to be baptized even though that's a capital crime in Afghanistan to be baptized. I don't have a public baptism, but they do get baptized <laughs> nevertheless. And they uh, have this growing uh, secret community. So remember uh, this is a, in terms of one of my former students. Again, the point is connecting. You know, and soccer can be a powerful way of connecting storytelling powerful way everybody would like stories and if you're good at it and practice being good at it then you're you've got a big opening to to uh, introduce the bible the second point here based on verses 23 through 39 is introduce jesus find a way you can introduce jesus and i find so often when people speak in public uh christians speak in public they, they kind of work around, you know, don't really talk about Jesus. You may remember the, the big uh, event that uh, Rudy Giuliani hosted at uh, Yankee Stadium after 9-11. And they had uh, different religious groups have a whole half hour to read their scripture or talk about coping with, with stress and tragedy and terrorism and so forth. And it was interesting. I But it was... I, they, I'm not sure how they structured it, but I think there were seven different groups. So it was three hours into the whole program that, um, uh, you know, that was there in, in a huge crowd at uh, Yankee Stadium uh, that uh, finally evangelical people or Protestant people were allowed to speak. And uh, so, I'm, and by the way, the Catholic uh uh, speaker said nothing about Jesus. It was all just generic stuff about God and trust and so forth, which is good, but uh, almost like they're ashamed of Jesus. So the uh, one of the speakers representing Protestants was uh, quoting from Romans uh, chapter eight, and you know familiar uh, passage. Um, in the last verse of chapter eight is, uh, "No power in the sky above or on earth below." Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I'm just waiting because this would be after now three hours and 15 minutes, the first time Jesus mentioned in all of uh, this long program. And instead, he stopped in the middle of that verse. He said, and nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, period. Dropping the most significant part of this that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, and other times, it's just very important that we, we watch for opportunities to mention Jesus 
recognize uh, his unique role in all of history. Paul is clearly not ashamed and, and tells a pretty exciting uh, detailed story of uh, Jesus' life, um, in, in starting with uh, John the Baptist there in verse 24. And, and then I, I love the uh, ironies that, uh, that Paul often uh, utilizes to rivet people's attention. Look at, uh, uh, for example, at, uh, ch in chapter 13 here, uh, look at verse 27. Uh, the people in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as one of the prophets ha had, uh, had talked about. Instead, they condemned him. And in doing this, they fulfilled the prophecy word that had already uh, been spoken uh, frequently on their Sabbath readings. So the people in their own condemnation of Jesus were actually fulfilling the prophecies that had been publicly read at synagogues for a long, long time. Uh, don't you love God's ironies? That, that people in their effort to hamper God's will turn out to be part of God's will. You, you may remember the story about Caiaphas in John 11, 46 to 53. Caiaphas in uh, planning to kill Jesus, Caiaphas says, uh, it, it's so bad, you know, the Romans are antsy about Jesus and people seem to be uh, uh, on edge and maybe uh, eager for a rebellion against Rome. So Caiaphas says, uh, therefore, the, it's better that one die for all the people rather than that all die. And then John adds, Caiaphas didn't realize it, but he himself was prophesying the whole point of Jesus' death. It's better that one die for all the people. And, and John, I think, has maybe uh, his tongue in one of his cheeks when he's saying this, uh, but is delighted that in his misguided and hateful ways, Caiaphas was fulfilling God's purpose that Jesus died for all of us, though Caiaphas had it all backwards. So, uh, you know, the, the Bible does not blame the Jews. There's no reason to uh, uh, be discriminatory against Jews because of their killing Jesus. But God did use their corrupt leaders and the corrupt leaders of the Roman presence in uh, Jerusalem to fulfill his most holy purpose. And, and the choice of Jesus' death was entirely in Jesus' hands. You can call it Passion Week, but it was not Passive Week. The only one that knew what was going on, the only one that was in charge all of Passion Week and Resurrection Sunday was our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he, he Paul just rehearses the amazing gospel of crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. And then the, the point of forgiveness and justification and the, the amazing power of Jesus' forgiveness uh, that nothing else uh, can justify us. Look especially at verses 38 and 39. Brothers, listen, we are here to proclaim that through this man, Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Isn't that amazing? And everyone who believes in him is declared right with God, is made righteous. 
something the law of Moses could never do. So, so uh, Paul is, is pointing out the law was not given to save people. The law actually starts with salvation. If you read again um, Exodus 20, the first commandment really is God introducing himself. He says to uh, the people, God says to the people, I am the Lord your God. I am the one who delivered you from slavery. I'm your savior. I'm the one that gave you liberation. So therefore, you're going to have no other gods. So it's the whole framework of the Ten Commandments is the life that has already been saved, saved from slavery, liberated from the consequences of sin, and and given uh, hope and future and a promised land and and much more. So the the and there's no place in the Old Testament that says if you obey all Ten Commandments, you're in God's graces completely to eternal life. Or even if you obey at least nine of them, you're in, you're in pretty good shape. That, that gets an A minus. And uh, so we're, you're good with God and, and he'll welcome you to his eternal kingdom. No, it's never stated ever in the Hebrew scriptures, even though a lot of our Jewish neighbors believe that. So it's, uh, it's imposed because people want to earn their salvation. They want to feel like they deserve it. The idea of grace, of undeserved favor, of, of uh, you know, being better than you deserve by far. Yeah, you deserve good. You're made in God's image. But the wonderful gift of God is his righteousness, a gift of his justice. That is, you are justified through him and liberated then to be, as Paul says, ironically, slaves of righteousness, slaves of doing it right, passionately, because of what Jesus has already done for us, living the amazing life of gratitude for grace. So introducing Jesus is not just as a historical figure and some amazing stories, but Paul's point is Jesus is the transformational moment for all of history. And, and now, it's, uh, this is the time to receive the one that God sent as uh, your Savior, our Savior. Now, this whole contrast between salvation by grace and the law, um, and salvation by law, salvation by good works, comes up uh, in lots of Paul's writings, and particularly in the writing he gave to Galatia. And there's an important connection between that and the story that we have today. And for good reason, the uh, opening uh, reflection came from Galatians. Because where Paul is speaking in this moment in Scripture is in Galatia. We, We might say Antioch of Pisidia, but Pisidia is part of Galatia. Galatia was a huge area in what's now called central Turkey. Um, so uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, is, are really ministering in a place that is named, and and and, uh, uh, and as I'll mention uh, very briefly, churches were founded even in this first missionary uh, journey. So briefly, the first point is connect 
Second point, introduce Jesus. Third point, just those last two verses that uh, Julian read, uh, guide decisions, guide people's decisions. Uh, you know, Paul speaks with a kind of ominous tone uh, and when he's quoting Habakkuk uh, there. Look, you mockers, be amazed and die. You know, if you're just amazed, that's it. You possibly you can interpret this, be so, um, just, um, uh, just let your amazement kill you, just to really, so it's, I'm, I'm not clear to what extent the word die here or perish is metaphoric, but, but to, you need to act on this. This is transforming information and urge them to respond. So, so what happens is many people want to follow the teachings of Paul and Barnabas. They, they leave the synagogue, apparently start organizing in some way. But Paul himself is uh, kicked out of uh, Antioch uh, there in, uh, uh, in uh, Galatia, a, a big city in Galatia. So he goes on to uh, other cities. He goes on to Iconium, about 100 miles east of Antioch and preaches there with, with some success. So though there's a pushback, goes down on to Lystra, a little less than 100 miles further out from uh, Antioch of Pisidia. And, uh, and there, uh, Jewish leaders from Antioch come to stir up the crowd, and they uh, actually pick up stones and stone Paul to death, or so they thought. They thought they had killed him. So they dragged what they thought was his corpse out of the city. I don't know if he was unconscious, uh, and maybe uh, maybe he did die here, or or maybe was conscious. But understanding, if he started moving, they would throw more stones to to completely finish him off. But then they left him outside of Lystra. And all the believers that, that had already come to Jesus there in Lystra st- stood around him and prayed. And uh, Paul came back to health, got up, and uh, then they headed off to Derby, so the fourth city in, in this immediate story, going past our uh, verse 41, and that another 100 miles or so. But if you follow the text, then uh, in... Uh, Acts 14, 21 through 23, Paul brings together leaders from these four churches, the four cities that he's brought people to Jesus, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. In probably a year and a half's time, maybe two years, in what we would call uh, 46 to 48, AD 46 to 48, and he appoints leaders and anoints them to be leaders before he heads back than to uh, uh, Antioch of Syria, the, the church that was supporting uh, Paul and Barnabas. So an exciting story, and so much more. If you uh, reread it, dig deep, or visualize what's going on. If I could, just one more uh, verse in Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, probably Paul's last letter, Probably Paul's last writing shortly before he was martyred. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, um, it says, 
that as Paul is thinking back over his ministry, writing to one of his most famous students, you know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch. He's referring to the very city we were talking about. In Iconium, the next city he went to. In Lystra, where he was stoned, probably to what they thought was uh, stoned to death. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. Isn't that amazing? The the, uh, imminent presence of God's protection. My student, by the way, was commenting to people that he brought to Jesus how, how amazing he'd been in situations where even a whole group of Muslim men were pointing guns at him, saying they were going to kill him right on the spot. And, and God gave him words. He's just a sweet guy. He's not a firebrand at all. Sweet guy. He just started talking about the love of God. And, and at any rate, soon they all put their guns down and wanted to hear more. And um, I don't think they were pretending when they said they were going to kill him. But these young believers that he was talking with uh, uh, fairly recently, they, they said, we should pray so you could see if there are guardian angels with you, protecting you. So they all got on their knees to pray in, in a private place. And, and then the student opened his eyes and he looked and he was surrounded by beings that were just flames of fire. All he could see, the fire was so intense but they had a kind of human shape, but, but this intense, powerful fire surrounding him, not fire that was burning the house or <laughs> doing any damage, but, but he was just overwhelmed more than he realized God's powerful presence was there. So whatever fears we have about sharing Jesus with our neighbors, family, other people we know, friends, um, remember that God is with us and let's stro- strongly grow in God's presence and grow in the ability to do what we're talking about, to connect with people, to introduce Jesus and to guide decisions. Say it with me if you would. Connect with people, introduce Jesus and guide decisions, including our own decisions to be more and more devoted and effective for Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you for this uh, extra time these dear uh, brothers and sisters uh, allowed me to take in this exciting text. And bless each one, Lord. Help them to grow in you and to be deeply inspired by Paul and Barnabas and by the other people that they know and even experiences in their own life. May our own testimonies help fill our tanks to be more godly, more courageous, more like Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.